Well, this morning we continue in our series that we have called Embodied, which is a meditation on the Bible's teaching about what it means for us to be people uh, with a body, who, who are embodied creatures by God's design. We've been thinking about this in part because it seems like not much Christian teaching, particularly in Protestant circles, has been given on this subject. And we've been thinking about this because this pandemic, this coronavirus, has made us have to face our bodies in unique ways. As we have been limited to our homes, as we have been separated from other people, this is an opportunity for us to get acquainted with ourselves in a different kind of way, to get acquainted with what it means to be embodied and to learn to rejoice in that and to accept our bodies as good gifts from God, as necessary as very good, and as, as, as sort of uh, containers that keep us limited to a place in a blessed way, um, and containers that, that limit us to our humanity, so that we stop trying to be, well, basically trying to be gods everywhere, all the time, doing everything. The embodied life was meant for our blessing, it was meant for our joy. Now, in terms of the sequence of the subjects this morning, we're going to think about what it means to be um, people with resurrected bodies. Uh, this subject could be at the very end of our study, but since we're celebrating the Lord's resurrection, and since that's our greatest hope as Christians, we're going to think about um, the resurrection and the resurrected body, what it's like and what to look forward to uh, in this morning's sermon. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There, the Apostle Paul is giving perhaps the longest defense of the resurrection uh, in the Bible. And if you were reading this entire chapter, you might divide it into three parts. And this is our outline uh, for this morning. Number one, verses one to 11, Paul gives a reminder of what Christians preach. A reminder of what Christians preach and teach. Now, because there are people in Corinth who reject the resurrection, the second section of the letter is a reply to the critics who deny the resurrection. A reply to the critics who deny the resurrection. That's verses 12 to 34. And then Paul turns and he begins to think about what the resurrection means, not for Jesus' body, but for our body. What the resurrection means for our body, verses 35 and 58. And that's really where we continue with our theme in this series. Before we look at 1 Corinthians 15, let's ask the Lord to help us to hear and preach this morning. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you've given us your word, and through your word you've given us life. We thank you that your word is sufficient for everything you call us to believe and do as your people. We praise you that by your word we hear your voice, and through your word we fellowship with you. We pray, O oh Lord, even now in our bodies where we are, we would be able to fellowship with you and commune with you in a rich and deep way. Be with us. Join us every place we are by your spirit, that we might know your nearness and hear your voice. In Jesus' name. Well, let's take that first section of the letter where Paul gives a reminder of what Christians believe and teach. That's what he sets out to do in verses 1 and 2. 
He says in verses 1 and 2, four things there. He says that he preached the gospel to them, that they received the gospel uh, in repentance and faith. Number three, they stand in the gospel. And number four, they are being saved as they continue believing the gospel. Now, verses 1 and 2 is really a short biography of the, of the Corinthian church and every church and every Christian. It's also a great summary of Christian ministry. First of all, the gospel must be preached. Uh, it must be preached if anyone is going to hear it and anyone is going to believe it. Paul says elsewhere, how can they hear except there be a preacher? So we have to share this gospel message with others, and that's why we exist as Christians. This is why God has left us in the world. That's why pastors are called into this ministry. That's why God gives gifted evangelists, so that we can witness to the gospel. But number two, now, the gospel must also be received or genuinely believed. We receive the gospel by repenting from sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Savior, as the only one uh, who rescues us from the judgment of God to come. That's what it means to be saved. It is, you hear people talk about being saved all the time. Every once in a while, you've got to ask them, saved from what? The answer to that is saved from God. Saved from God's wrath, saved from God's judgment, saved from an eternity in hell as a consequence of God's righteous anger against sin. So, the gospel must be received in repentance and faith in Christ as the only way to escape God's judgment and the only way to be made right with God, reconciled to Him, forgiven. But then now, we don't just receive the gospel, we must also, as Paul says in verses 1 and 2, we must take our stand in the gospel. In other words, we, we can't start off by faith and then try to continue in self-righteousness. That was the problem in Galatia. We, we can't start off by trusting Christ for our salvation and then say, okay, I got it from here, I'll maintain it. No, that's, that's legalism and self-righteousness. It's not that Jesus initially saves us and then it's up to us. No, it's that Jesus saves you and me, and as we keep trusting in him, it's he who keeps saving us. We, we take our stand in his righteousness, in his grace, in what he has done for us. This is why we need Christian discipleship and Christian fellowship and the Christian church. And so that we help each other to stand in the gospel. This is why pastoral care is important and small groups are helpful. The local church is like a big co-op, mutually helping each other to remain in the faith. So it's by this kind of faith that keeps on believing that we are, notice in verse 2, being saved. So verses two, 1 and 2 is a reminder of what Paul preached. He says, I, I want to remind you and he says there that this gospel is of first importance. There's, there's nothing more important than this message. There's nothing higher on the agenda. There's nothing more profound. There's nothing more essential than this message, which is of first importance. This means if anything comes before the gospel in a Christian's life or in the church, then whatever that thing is, it corrupts the Christian faith and it threatens to become an idol, a false god. Nothing can be more important 
than this message that we have dedicated to, which is the gospel. But if you notice now, up until this point, Paul hasn't even defined the gospel. He's just used the phrase, but but he defines it in verses 3 to 11. In verses 3 to 11, he gives us four historical events that are really the definition of the gospel. These four things, these four actions done by Jesus is Paul's biblical summary in 1 Corinthians 15 of the core message, the good news of Christianity. Number one, he says in verse 3, notice there, Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's a historical and a theological fact. The historical fact is that Jesus died. He was crucified on the cross. But the theological truth is it was for our sins. It wasn't for his sins. He had none. It was for our sins. It was for our atonement, for our rescue, to pay the penalty that we deserve. We were the sinners who should have been hung on the cross. But Jesus became our substitute. He died because of and to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins. You might put it this way. Our sin caused his death, but his death cures our sin. Our sin caused his death, but he died for our sins. His death then cures, is the antidote, is the remedy, is the medicine, is the tonic, is the balm for our sin. Here's the second fact that Paul mentions there in his definition of the gospel. In verse 4, Jesus Christ was buried in a grave. Not only did he die, but he was buried. This is an indication that his death was not a fantasy. It wasn't a figment of people's imagination. It was a bodily, physical death. He literally died and was buried and remained in a grave three days. They wrapped him in burial linens, placed him in a cave, rolled a stone, large, giant boulder, to the entrance to the cave, and they left him there because it was dead. Here's the third fact. Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. Verse 4. God the Father lifted him from his tomb in resurrection power. That's what we celebrate today. That's why there's even a Christian faith. If Christ had remained dead, Christianity would have been aborted at the beginning. The disciples had scattered in fear and disappointment. They were cowering at homes and going back to their old way of life. And for three days, they had mourned in misery. But on the third day, God raised him from the grave and everything changed. Their lives were revolutionized. And the world was turned upside down. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. His resurrection proved that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. Sometimes when people are in conflict and they they work things out, they they look at each other and say something like this, we good? The resurrection was God's we good to sinners who turn to Christ and accept him. Here's the fourth historical fact. Verses 5 to 11, Jesus appeared to many people at different times. So again, the resurrection is not something done in a corner, in darkness, in secrecy. It's bold. It's public. It's indisputable. Jesus comes back, and notice in the verses there, he appears to Cephas, that's Peter. 
Then he appears to the 12 apostles in verse 5. Verse 6, he appears to as many as 500 people at the same time. Verse 7, uh, he appears to James. And then verse 8, he appears to Paul. Uh, his resurrection wasn't something to be hidden, but made known. He, he comes forward and shows that I am risen. And he gives in his flesh, his nail-scarred hands, and his, his pierced side, he gives in his resurrected body evidence that he is who he said he was, the Son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, to bring an eternal kingdom, and to bring forgiveness and everlasting life with the Father. I noticed something there in verses 3 and 4 about these four facts. Twice Paul says that these things are in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. By Scriptures there, he means what we call the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament had been written centuries before Paul, and, 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 and now Paul is saying, actually, these four facts and what Jesus came to do, that was already predicted centuries before Jesus. And now what has happened in Jesus' lifetime is in accordance with, it confirms, it fulfills what was prophesied. This is why, as Christians, we have confidence and take comfort in the Bible as true, because the historical events of Christ's life are fulfillment of things God said he would do centuries earlier. And so the Scriptures give us confidence in Jesus, and Jesus fulfilling the Scriptures gives us confidence in the Scriptures, and this is why Christianity is not make-believe. This is why the resurrection is vital. It means our faith is real and true and historical, and verifiable. The gospel is in accordance with the scriptures. And this calls us to put our faith in these truths in God's word and in what Jesus did for us in his crucifixion on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, I don't know about Easter when you have to celebrate the resurrection online, but up before this year, at Easter time, church will be full with a lot of people that ain't in church no other time. Easter only Christians. People who seem to only call themselves or consider themselves Christians at Easter when they get a new suit and a new hat and new shoes. We love y'all. We ain't mad. We ain't trying to be, trying to be shady with y'all. But I want to speak, want to speak to you if that's you and you join us online this morning. Listen, if you're calling yourself a Christian, but you believe something else, than what you just heard, those four facts of the gospel, I have bad news for you. You are not a Christian. If you're calling yourself a Christian, and you're hoping to go to heaven for some other reason than Jesus' righteousness, death, and resurrection, I, I have bad news for you. You are not yet a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, but you believe that... that um, the gospel message is important, but there are other more important things for you to do, whether it's your family or your job or things of that sort. I have bad news. You, you may not yet be a Christian. Today would be a good day to stop deceiving yourself, to stop pretending, to stop being ritualistic and religious. Today will be a good day to actually hear the news that you are a sinner. And if you die in your sin, 
You're going to need God as your judge, and you're going to suffer eternally. And to hear the promise that if you turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, today will be the day of your new birth, that you too will be resurrected to a new life, and you will live with God, not as your judge, but as your Father, in his love, in his acceptance, forgiven and made whole. Or perhaps you know you're not a Christian. You're not deceiving yourself. You're not pretending. You've never claimed to be a Christian. I hope that what you've heard from us this morning has been clear. That the central message of Jesus Christ, of the of Christianity, is that Jesus died for your sins. That he was buried and three days later he was raised from the grave to prove that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And to prove that through him, we have victory over death. That's how you escape God's judgment. If you still have questions about that, please um, drop us a, a message online there or send us an email to the church or give us a call to the church. We'd like nothing more than to help you understand this message and why you should believe it. But if, if we have been clear and you understand those things, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart in unbelief. Do not walk away from God's offer of salvation, from his offer to rescue you from judgment through faith in his Son. Confess your sins, believe on Christ, and you will be saved. And if you do that, we, we would love to hear from you and love to know how we can encourage you as you then begin to stand in the gospel, to grow in it and to trust it day by day. We, we hope that you will come to know our, our risen Lord. Well, that's the first point. Paul wanted to remind them of what we Christians believe. And we need that reminder daily ourselves. But then in the middle of the chapter, he, he begins to address those critics who deny the resurrection. That's what we see in verses 12 to 19. And, and uh, you might say that, or 12 to 34, excuse me, you, you might say this section itself is divided into two parts. As, as Paul begins to engage the critics of the resurrection, the deniers of the resurrection, he really gives us a model for how to engage anybody in public conversation that we disagree with. The first thing he says basically is, well, let's say you're right. Let's say you're right. Let's say that there is no resurrection. That's how Paul begins in verse 12. Then in verses 13 to 19, he gives seven results, if that's true. If the resurrection didn't happen, there are seven consequences, seven results, seven things that follow on from that fact. Number one, verse 13 and verse 16, Christ is not raised. So if the dead are not raised to new life, then Jesus himself is still dead and is decomposed. Number two, Preaching is in vain. What I'm doing right now and what Christians assemble to hear every week, well, that's, that's empty. That's meaningless. If Christ is not risen, what are we preaching for? Number three, verse 14, and again in verse 17, your faith, Christian, is vain. Or verse 17, your faith is futile. It's empty. It doesn't achieve anything. It's meaningless to believe in a Jesus who isn't risen from the grave. Number four, if the dead are not raised, then we Christians are liars, and we are lying on God. 
Because we're saying God raised his son from the grave when he didn't. That doesn't make us worshipers. That makes us blasphemers if the dead are not raised. Number five, verse 17. If the dead are not raised, we are still in our sins. We still have a sin problem. We are still guilty before God. So listen, if you're listening and you're not a Christian, here's something you have to reckon with. I trust that you will acknowledge that sin is real. But if you're rejecting Jesus and his resurrection, you still have to answer the question, what are you going to do with your sin problem? If Christ is not risen, then we are all still in our sins, and we are all guilty before God, and we're all deserving of his judgment. Number six, if the dead are not raised... Then the dead have perished. Verse 18. And number seven, if the dead are not raised, well, Christians are pitiful. We have believed a lot. It would have been better if we had said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because if the dead are not raised, there's no life after this one, um, and nothing matters except what we do in this life. So Paul is saying, basically, listen, if there is no resurrection, that's a wrap. It's all over. There's no good news in the life to come. There's no good news even in this life. If it is not raised, all we have is this broken, busted world. Full of things like the coronavirus and street violence and cancer and broken marriages and broken promises and shattered dreams. Things are hopeless if there is no resurrection from the dead. But Paul says, let's say you're right. That's the world you're left with. But then Paul says in verses 20 to 24, but let's look at the facts. So he's done with sort of considering their claim, which is false, and, and sort of telling them what the implications are of their claim. Now he's saying, but in fact, notice verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's look at the the facts that follow on from that truth. I count six things. Number one, the first fruits will be raised with Christ. That's what we see in verses 20 to 23. First fruits is a, a farming metaphor reference. First fruits refers to the the very first part of the harvest, the first uh, fruits or um, crop that are gathered in. That's not the whole harvest. That's just the beginning of the harvest. There's a fuller harvest to come. And that's what Paul is saying here about the resurrection. Jesus is the first fruit plucked in the resurrection, but there's a fuller harvest of resurrected bodies to come. That's those of us who believe in Christ. If the dead are raised, and they are, and not only is Christ risen, but we are risen together with him. Number two, verse 24, Paul writes this, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every authority and power. And I put it this way, the kingdom will fully come after the resurrection. Because Christ has been raised, and we will be raised with him at the end of days, the kingdom will come in its full, and Jesus will destroy, it says here, uh, every authority and power, which is a reference to Satan and, and the sort of spiritual forces of darkness. But the resurrection is the announcement that Jesus has conquered darkness, and he has brought a new kingdom. Number three, because Jesus is raised, Jesus will reign over death. You see that in verses 25 and 26. 
He's defeated death in the resurrection, and now he makes death his footstool. He props his feet up on it, kicks back and relaxes, because death, though it goes on until Jesus comes, it will not hold us forever. It will not have the final word. The resurrection means life has the final word. And, and number four, the resurrection gives meaning to hope in an afterlife. That's what we see in verse 29. Paul makes that reference there to people being baptized for the dead. Scholars don't really know what that's about. That's not really a Christian practice. We don't believe that we can be baptized for someone who's already died and somehow they be saved or any such thing like that. But, but what that reference does point to is a fervent hope in a life after this one. That hope is meaningless if there's no resurrection, but there is a resurrection, then that hope is sure, that hope is true, that, that hope is good. And Paul is, Paul is saying, now listen, I, I want to point you to an afterlife and a hope for your loved ones because of the resurrection. And, and number five, the resurrection makes persecution and suffering worth it. Makes persecution and suffering worth it. That's, that's what he's getting at in verses 30 to 32. He talks about why he's beaten and persecuted. Why, why is he being shipwrecked? Why is he going through all of this stuff to preach the gospel if the resurrection isn't true? And, 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 and if the resurrection is true, that Christ is risen from the grave, and that's the message of first importance, then we should endure anything to make that message known. So the resurrection gives meaning to our suffering. It gives meaning to our sacrifice in the name of Christ to spread the gospel. Because Jesus rose, it's worth it to follow him. Come, come what may. But he hadn't promised us easy times. He hadn't promised us that everything would be rosy and we would never suffer. In fact, he says all those who follow him, who follow God in righteousness and holiness, we shall suffer persecution. But it'll be worth it because he rose to everlasting life and eternal power in the resurrection and we rise together with him. That's Paul's reply. The fact of the resurrection gives us hope in our suffering and hope for a coming kingdom to come. The world is hopeless without a risen Savior. And this is why we sing in hymn lyrics like, like this, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. But now let's look at a third thing here. What does the resurrection mean for our bodies? That's really what Paul spends the rest of the chapter on, verses 35 to 58. Verse 35, he imagines that someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Well, what kind of body do they come? So they're confused about the power of the resurrection and how the resurrection works. And maybe they're not quite like the critics who reject the resurrection, but they, they haven't come to understand the, the truth and the power of the gospel when it comes to raising people to new life. And so as Paul spends these verses uh, explaining to them six facts that they need to understand about the resurrection. And these are six facts 
about that body we will have. Not the one that we're in currently, but that eternal embodiment that we will enjoy in glory. Let me give them to you real quick. Number one, the death of this body will give life to another body. The death of this body will give life to another body. That's what Paul says in verse 36. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's using, again, a farming illustration here. The farmer sows seed in the ground and plants seed in the ground. That seed has to die in order for the plant to live. And that's the case with our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies. The earthly body has to die, but, but that's how our everlasting heavenly body sprouts up. So for the Christian, death is a doorway. That death is planting a seed that rises up in this new heavenly body. That's the first thing. Number two, this body will be changed into another body. That's what we see in verse 37. And what you sow is not raised the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. In other words, when you put seed in the ground, you plant some kind of seed, it doesn't sprout up into more seed. You plant the seed in the ground, the seed dies, that was our first point, but then the seed gives rise to um, whatever plant was contained in the DNA of the seed. So you plant uh, a seed of corn, up comes a corn stalk. You plant a seed of wheat, up comes a wheat stalk. You plant an apple seed, up comes an apple tree that... And then those bodies give way to life. And up sprouts a new body, a resurrected body, that is not the exact same body that we lay down, but a, a glorified body fit for heaven. Now, the next thing to observe is that our bodies, like to come, will be distinct from other kinds of bodies. It's 38 and 39. Paul writes there, but God gives the body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed his own body for not all flesh is the same but there is one kind for humans another for animals another for birds and another for fish the, re the resurrected body like our natural body is a gift from God notice there verse 38 God gives it a body God Taylor makes it he is designed or chosen it it will still be human. We will not be like other animals. So this rules out reincarnation. We don't come back as uh, horses or come back as crickets or something. And it rules out the idea that we graduate to becoming angels. We earn our wings. That's superstition. That's not biblical Christianity. We, we will be human, but God will remake us as he chooses. This body will be a heavenly body with a different kind of glory, according to verse 40. It, it will be made in such a way that it, it grants us perfect enjoyment of all that heaven is offers and perfect enjoyment of God himself. The beauty and the splendor, the majesty and the brilliance of the heavenly body while it comes from an earthly body, 
is utterly different and more glorious than anything on earth. Which leads to point number four. Verses 42 to 44. The resurrected body will be a better body. A bit better body. Paul gives four contrasts of uh, the body that is sown in comparison to the body that is raised. Verse 42, the body is sown, perishable. That means it can die and waste away and spoil. What is raised, imperishable. It is eternal. It does not die. It does not fade or spoil. Verse 43, the body is sown in dishonor. We have corruptions and weaknesses because of sin. But it is raised in glory. It is raised in brilliance and perfection and radiance. The body is sown in weakness. We are fallen creatures with significant limitations and and inabilities. When God raises us, we are raised in power, in resurrected power. We're sown a natural body, we are raised a spiritual body. So, in these contrasts, every blemish and every limitation that marks the body, the human body, since the fall of Adam and Eve in sin, perishable, dishonor, weakness, um, natural, all those things will be replaced in the resurrection with its opposite. We will be imperishable, we will not die, we will be raised in glory, we will be raised in power will be given a spiritual body. It'll be real body, but they will not be made of flesh and blood. Spiritual bodies will be touchable and permanent, but they won't have the limitations of the natural body. For example, think about the Lord Jesus Christ after the resurrection. How he passed through doors to meet with his disciples. How he could be in one place at one moment and another place in another instant. He was in a spiritual glorified body. We will be enabled with bodily abilities that we can't yet imagine when we're in those spiritual bodies. Number five. I've already hinted at this, but the resurrected body will be like Jesus' body. That's the argument of verses 45 to 49. All of our Christian life, we are being clothed with Christ. That's what the Bible says in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so our earthly lives in this earthly tent, we are steadily putting on Christ each day. We are united to Jesus spiritually by faith, and we have been conformed to his image and likeness. And this union and conformity not only happens mentally and spiritually, which is how we're used to thinking about those things. But in the resurrection, we conform to Jesus bodily, too. We were like Adam, but now we become like the second Adam, Jesus Christ. See there in verse 45, Adam was a living being, but Jesus was a life-giving spirit. 
Verse 47, Adam was from the earth. Jesus is from heaven. Verses 48 49, we are right now in the image of the man of dust. But then in resurrection, we're going to be in the image of the man of heaven. All of our frustrations with our bodies will be over. All of the corruptions of our bodies will be over. And all the beauty and all the glory and all the splendor of Christ's spiritual body will be ours as we are raised in this newness of life and raised in these resurrection bodies. We, we will always be embodied people. But in the resurrection, we're going to be perfectly embodied, spiritually embodied. We're going to be in the body and likeness and image of Christ. One more thing to observe here, number six. The body is more necessary and more sure than death. The resurrected body is more necessary and more sure than death itself. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2 when God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree? He told them that if they did that, the moment they did it, they would begin to die. They would die. So death became necessary in the garden because of sin. God expelled them from the garden and put angels there to protect the way so that they could not come back into the garden in that sin. That's why Paul says in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, right now, our sinful bodies are incompatible with heaven because sin causes them to perish. It goes all the way back to the garden and the first Adam. But there's a mystery. There's a mystery. There's something being revealed in the gospel. Something new has been shown to us. It's this. Paul says, we shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed. Well, why shall we all be changed? Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Pay attention to the word must. That word must means that the change produced by the resurrection is an absolute necessity. There's no way to avoid it. There's no way to delay it. There's no way around it. No substitution for it. Your resurrection and my resurrection into a new and glorified body prepared for heaven must happen. Adam and Eve sin in the garden made death necessary, but Jesus' empty tomb has now made the resurrection necessary. Through the resurrection of the dead, we may now enter the place where flesh and blood were prohibited. We may now go into the kingdom of heaven, face to face with God. This must happen. It is more sure than death. People sometimes joke that the only thing that we have to do is pay taxes and die. The resurrection says, no, the only thing you have to do is be raised to newness of life. Our permanent God will have a permanent kingdom filled with permanent people in glorified bodies like his son so that we can enjoy it. What is the final thing about 
the resurrected body. Number seven. The resurrected body will be our ultimate victory. Verses 54 to 58, Paul writes there, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. <laughs> what shall we say to that? Except hallelujah. Verses 54 to 56, the Bible invites us really to taunt, to mock, to pick at death. The Bible says three times, death, death, death. But it answers three times, victory, victory, victory. The law exposes our sin. And sin has the power to put us to death. And death carries with it a sting. But all of that is defeated and overcome by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that death has no sting. Uh, sin has no power over us. And the law no longer condemns us. We have victory by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to apply this truth. It is to celebrate it and do what verse 58 says. Notice there, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Or to use the phrase Paul used back in verse 2, stand in the gospel by which you are being saved if you continue believing. Don't anybody turn you around. Let anybody move you from your hope in the resurrection. Serve the Lord faithfully in these decaying bodies, knowing that in the resurrection, you're going to get a new one that does not perish, made for glory, made like Christ, eternally beautiful. That's your future, Christian. That's what's going to happen to these bodies, and it's glorious. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have provided for us in the resurrection. Provided for us a way to enjoy you in the fullness of your love and your glory. We cry, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Gather us up out of this dust and clothe us with immortality, we pray. In Jesus' name.